Hey, everybody. Welcome to the 65th episode of It Wasn't Me, a true crime podcast where we chat about murder. I'm Mercedes, and I'm going solo this episode because Cindy's off taking care of business. We both want to say thank you so much for listening to last week's episode when we discussed the Scissor Sisters from Dublin, Ireland. If you haven't listened to us before, then you have to know that our show can often be horrifying and graphic, and we'll also use a lot of offensive language. So if you have kids, put them away for a while and join us for a murder. Also, we are passionate and always have been about true crime. But I have to warn you, we might make jokes and laugh during the podcast. And I might do that by myself. Want to learn more about us? Visit our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com to find links to our social media pages. We drop a new episode every Friday morning. So subscribe to our podcast on your favorite platform so you don't miss out. Thanks for listening. And if you are even slightly entertained by the Southern charm amongst us, please leave us a five-star rating along with a comment. And if you're not that impressed and you want to complain, please reach out to us. Let us know what you think that we should do to improve ourselves. Also, spread the word and recommend our podcast to your friends and family. We certainly do appreciate y'all. All right. So this week, I'm taking you to Washington State, where we haven't been yet. We've been all um all 49 other states we just had and a few other countries but we hadn't been to washington yet so that's where we're going this week and i don't know i'm always attracted to um great stories about people but horrific acts of violence and this is another story of domestic violence and just like the other ones that i've done already um you know brandy bernard and uh, the Kaler women and uh, Jennifer Farber Dulos and um, I can't remember the other one that I did, but I think it's important that I at least say her name and acknowledge her and Ashley Benson. This one is unique in a way because it was a case of mistaken identity. So we're going to go ahead and get started. I want to start by telling you about. Uh, a, an internet news report that I read from Skagitbreaking.com, which is a community internet news source published uh, in September 25th, 2017. The Snohomish County Sheriff's Office responded to the 3100 block of York Road around 2 a.m. on Wednesday, September 20th, 2017, for reports of multiple gunshots heard by residents in the area. All right, so further research, I found that when deputies arrived, they found a nearly deceased adult male, female, I'm sorry, female in the front doorway of a duplex. This female had been shot multiple times, and when police got there, another adult female was at the home with three children, and all three of the, the children and the other adult female was asleep at the home at the time of the shooting. The Snohomish, excuse me. The Snohomish County Sheriff's Office immediately reported that they were investigating this as a homicide and the suspect remained at large. Detectives cased area homes and businesses and asked anyone with video and or photo surveillance to please come forward. They asked specifically for anything showing vehicles or pedestrian traffic within a one-mile radius of the homicide between 1 and 3 a.m. September 20th. Now, this wasn't the first time police had responded to 911 calls at this address. On that website, that internet website I told you about, 
the staff writer or the owner of the website, reported that court records show that the police responded to the same duplex on York Road in the past for various domestic violence complaints from another woman associated with the duplex. Detectives had a lot to sort out, first being who was the victim and why her. They interviewed the other female who had been asleep at the time of the shooting, as well as the three young children. They learned that the victim was 24-year-old newlywed Alicia Canales McGuire. No, um, she was known as Punky to friends and family, and that's what I call her throughout. This wasn't Punky's residence. They found out, police found out that she didn't live there. She lived in a nearby town called Birdsview. She happened to be at her sister's because her sister had to go out of town for business. So Punky was staying at the home with a nanny. The nanny's name was Amanda, um, I'm sorry, Abigail Ruggles. And she was there to help take care of and spend time with her nieces and nephew while her sister was out of town. Now, after looking into Punky's life, police pretty quickly determined that she was not the intended target. They believed that her sister, Amanda, was. In addition, the deputies interviewed about 100 people in the hours after the shooting, and they were interested particularly in the whereabouts of Mr. Kevin Lewis, who happened to be Punky's estranged brother-in-law. He was married to Punky's sister, Amanda, the woman who had been working out of town. Now, according to, to detectives at the time, Kevin Lewis figured prominently as the person who had the motive to kill. At the time of the shooting, Kevin Lewis was married to Punky's sister, as I said. Amanda and Kevin were in the midst of an abusive, violent divorce and custody battle over their three children. The two were married in July 2009, but they didn't have a happy marriage. According to Amanda, Kevin had been controlling and psychologically abusive toward her regarding her friends, her clothing, her appearance, her daily activities. She and Lewis had lived as a couple in their Linwood home until 2016. At that time, she moved out of the bedroom and into the downstairs office. So they lived in the same home, but they slept in separate rooms. And when she was awake, she refused to be in the same room as him. She later told, um, she later testified that she stayed where Lewis wasn't. When their home suffered water damage in November 2016, she took the children to a hotel and Kevin stayed at the house or wherever. One night he showed up at the hotel. He stayed, he showed up at the hotel on November 17th, wanting to spend time with his family. Well, she's like, fine, you can hang out with the kids. I'm leaving. So she left the hotel and went back to the family home to spend the night. That's where she was sleeping at 5 a.m. the next morning when she was rudely awoken by Kevin demanding to see her cell phone. Now I ask you, how the hell would you react to this? Somebody, your husband, whom you don't like, rudely woke you up, demanded to see your phone in the middle of the night. I'm not middle of the night, freaking five o'clock in the morning. No, I'm sleeping. Anyway, I, I imagine that would have been something similar to her reaction. And um, at that point, she probably said, I know she definitely told him no, she probably told him fuck no or fuck off or something, but whatever she said caused him to lose his shit and he full on man punched her in her face, straight in her nose, busted her nose. Okay. So she's hurt. She's shocked and she wants him to get the fuck out. So she gives him the phone. She gives him the phone. She's like, okay, how do I get him out of here? I'm going to give him the phone. 
He didn't just take the phone. He punched her a couple of times in the face again with violent force. Now, at trial, she said that he hit her in the jaw and eye before he left her alone. And afterwards, she did seek, seek treatment for the injuries. She had broken teeth and vision problems. After she left the hospital, after she left getting medical treatment, she packed up the kids and the nanny and moved out. The next documented incident occurred on June 18th, 2017, when Kevin called Amanda, trying to convince her to come home with the kids. Oh, please, honey, come home, come home. When she said, no, I'm not ever coming home, he then threatened that if she didn't come back, he's going to file for a divorce and get, or seek, and then get full custody. Because if he doesn't get full custody, custody then he's going to kill her. Now, this fr frightened Amanda enough to immediately notify police of the threat. Three days later, just before midnight, she had, she pulled into her driveway at her new residence and she was just sitting in her car, car a few minutes, chilling, looking at her phone. Now, I, I mean, I do this too. Like when I pull in the driveway, I just chill out. I put the car in park. I play on my phone. I don't know. I just, after the drive home, it's just kind of like, just a quiet moment to myself before I go in the house and deal with the kids and dinner and all that stuff. And so I imagine that that's what she was doing. But as she opened her car door after about eight or 10 minutes of sitting there, she was exiting her vehicle when all of a sudden she was viciously attacked from behind. She was hit on the head and body numerous times, many, many, many times before the attack just suddenly stopped. She was able to get back into her car and lock the doors and call 911, but she could not identify her attacker because she was a blitz from behind and she never saw him. She did tell the officers about her strange husband's pattern of abuse, and then she was taken to the hospital. She was hospitalized for her injuries. She did have a cut on her eyebrow that needed stitches. Her arms and wrists were injured, I'm guessing from defensive wounds or something. Uh, she still suffers neuropathy from that. And then, you know, they were looking for concussion and things uh, of that nature. An officer was immediately dispatched to Kevin's residence. So, I mean, the police are treating this as an assault. And so they're everywhere. And the one that was in, that uh, went straight to Kevin's house, was in his driveway looking into Kevin's car, car windows when Kevin rolled up on a bicycle. Officers are like, okay, well, you know, where have you been? And have you been anywhere near your wife's residence? And Kevin said, no, I have been nowhere near there. I've only been out for about 30 minutes and I didn't go anywhere near there. Well, as I said, police were everywhere and they stopped and interviewed businesses and places along the way between Kevin's and Amanda's. And there happened to be a casino there. Now, from my understanding, they questioned a casino parking lot employee to see if he had seen anyone who didn't seem to belong. I'm pretty sure it was an employee or someone that was in the parking lot. He, he told police that, yeah, as a matter of fact, I did. I spoke with a guy who was on a bike. The guy was Kevin Lewis. And the, um, he was in our parking lot. This was the night of the attack. Kevin said, mm, I haven't been anywhere in that vicinity. He's been caught in a lie. Lewis had told the police, like I said, that he had not been anywhere near there. But how did the employee know who Kevin was? Well, incidentally, the casino employee knew Kevin because Kevin was married to his distant cousin, Amanda. Now, this is going to be an important fact later. 
and I put distant relative. I, I just said cousin. I'm not really 100% sure of the relationship, but they are distantly related. All right, so other than that, police have no evidence proving that Kevin was the attacker. Sure, he's a liar, but we can't prove that he was there. However, Amanda wasted no time taking legal action. Three days after the attack, she filed a protection order against Kevin. And she also publicly wrote about the attack on social media. She posted pictures of her injuries, which, by the way, were really bad. I did see those pictures. She was bruised, swollen. Um, her eyes were swollen shut. You could barely, she could barely see. Everything was swollen. Nose, lips, face, everything. Black and blue and swollen. And, you know, she called her her husband out on it. So I imagine that probably pissed him off. Anyway, the, the court did grant her a temporary order on June 28th, 2017. They had to go to court uh, a couple weeks later for the permanent protection order. And it had to be at that, um, at that court date at the courthouse when Lewis violated that order by calling her a fucking bitch in front of everyone at the courthouse. So that is his first violation of the protective order. Less than two weeks later, on July 25th, 2017, Lewis again violated the protective order when he contacted the nanny, Abigail Ruggles, and demanded that she give a message to Amanda regarding belongings that were at their family home. Ruggles later testified that when she went over to the house to retrieve the items, Lewis backed her into a wall, pretended to like box her on both sides of her head, and then he shot her with a finger gun, you know, like put his fingers up and bow, bow. When she got home, she was shaken up. She told Amanda what happened and Amanda immediately reported it to police. Kevin filed for divorce and custody of the children and everything went as quiet as far as I can tell the rest of that summer. Now, I'm sure it wasn't, but it's not documented in court documents or newspaper articles. But what I can tell you that until September 20th, 2017, when Punky was shot dead in her sister's doorway, I couldn't find anything. Now, Punky was born October 29th, 1992 in Mount Vernon, Washington, to a very loving family. Her father still speaks very, very warm and lovingly about her. She and her siblings grew up on a farm and she helped on it, helped out her family on that farm until the day she died. She loved helping others. She was loyal and trusted. And I read quite a few posts about her from, um, from friends and family. And she was truly, truly loved. And she was gorgeous. Over and over, her friends and families, uh, made comments about her being the type of person who just knew when you needed a helping hand, when you needed a shoulder to cry on, when you needed a partner in crime, or just, you know, somebody to sit next to you. She was a newlywed. She and her best friend, Brad McGuire, were married in a beach ceremony in July 2017, only a couple months before she was gunned down. Punky and Brad had lived together in Birdsview, Washington, they had hopes and dreams for a family. She was trying to have children and for a lifetime of love and memories. I feel so bad for her husband. I feel like he gets lost and forgotten in this tragedy. I kind of think maybe he wants it that way, though, because, you know, I mean, that's a, such a personal loss. 
Punky worked a few miles away as a CNA at an adult assisted living facility. She was a, was a loving caretaker. Everybody liked her. She gladly offered to stay with her nieces and nephew while her sister was on a business trip in New York. And when she clocked out from her late shift that evening, she drove straight to her sister's. So it was natural that she would be the one to open the door at 1.55 a.m. because she didn't. She had just gotten home. It was September 20th, 2017, and everyone else in the house was asleep. Lewis was at the top of the suspect list. So, of course, I told you, police got to his house pretty quickly in the early morning. And when they knocked on his door at 5 a.m., he opened it rather quickly, like he was expecting someone. He was wearing a white tank top. That's kind of important in a few minutes. Detectives asked him if he knew where his ex-wife was, and he reportedly told them she should be home. And when they told him she was out of town on business, detectives said he looked surprised and asked, really? And remember I told you that detectives had asked neighbors and businesses for security footage? Well, they hit the mother load because one of the videos showed a man in a tank top, the same white tank top, who and later was determined to be Lewis, according to court records. They saw him getting into a car around 1.13 a.m. and returning at 1.37 a.m. Investigators believe that Lewis was showing someone the duplex where his estranged wife lived. However, no other evidence could be found, and this wasn't enough to make a case. So the case went cold, and Punky's family and friends prayed for justice. I cannot imagine the fear, grief, and anger that Amanda had when she heard the news from her dad, who called her as soon as he learned that Punky had been shot at Amanda's. He knew that those bullets were not meant for Punky. Amanda's sister was murdered when it should have been her, or, I mean, honestly, should it really have been, shouldn't have been either of them. Her home was a crime scene. The murderer was still free. The murderer was most probably the father of her own children, who was still a major threat to her. At some point, Amanda and her children went to a domestic violence shelter, and this is what she wrote on her Facebook page. Domestic violence services of Snohomish County was incredible. I was so hesitant to call at first, and actually it was my lawyer who set them up for me. I was blown away by their facility. My kids and I stayed there for a few weeks while I was in hiding, and it was so safe and secure. Clean, private, exceeded my expectations in every way. I had no idea shelters could be like that, and it wasn't at all what I'd envisioned. They had services to assist in locating housing, getting clothes women might need if they had to suddenly flee, etc., Thankfully, she had a reprieve when Lewis was finally arrested, not for murder, but domestic violence-related offenses. On April 2nd, 2018, Kevin Lewis was charged with six counts of domestic violence-related offenses. This included two counts of assault in the second degree, telephone harassment, two counts of gross misdemeanor violation of a no-contact order, and assault in the fourth degree. The three felony counts, assault in the second degree, and telephone harassment included a domestic violence aggravating factor because the offenses were part of an ongoing pattern of abuse of the victim. So he had a trial, and at his trial, the prosecution called Amanda and Abigail Ruggles, who's the nanny. I pretty much already told you most of their testimony. The prosecution also called Jesus Rosales to the stand, and he was the casino employee who saw Lewis on his bike the night of Amanda's attack. Rosales testified about the night he ran into Kevin in the parking lot, and then when the attorney, one of the sides, asked him a question, they testified that he learned through social media that there was a murder on our side of the family. Both sides had agreed pre-trial they would not discuss Punky's murder at all. So it was an it was an error that Rosales testified to that. 
Immediately, Kevin's attorney objected. The jury was removed from the courtroom while each side discussed the slip-up. Kevin's side moved for a mistrial, but the judge denied that motion. The jury returned and Rosales was again called to the bench to continue his testimony. He explained that he misspoke earlier and it meant an assault. So he, he was meaning the assault, but he brought up the murder by accident. He specifically clarified that he was referring to the attack on Amanda while exiting her vehicle. The defense successfully moved to dismiss the phone harassment charges, but he was still convicted. The jury convicted Kevin on both counts of assault in the second degree, and the jury found that both assaults were aggravated domestic violence. He was acquitted on the no contact misdemeanor and the assault. Those charges had been severed, so they were in a different trial. Later, they were dismissed. He was sentenced for the two charges to 38 months in jail, including mandatory consecutive time. Of course, he immediately appealed because he's that guy. But he lost the appeal on 4-20-2020, just about a year ago. The appeal was long and long and drawn out, but I've already included a lot of the information I told you about the crime and what's happened up to this point and how he treated his wife. And he did claim that, you know, that he should have gotten a mistrial for Jesus Rosales. Of course, he lost that. So it doesn't matter anyway. His ass is sitting in jail. And when a few months later, 2018, the summer of 2018, two people came forward to detectives with tips about the murder of Punky Canales McGuire. Her family had put up a reward for any tips that would lead to their arrest and conviction of Punky's murder. And I'm sure many tips came in after the announcement of the reward, but two tips were instantly taken seriously. Ted Betts, a sheriff's detective, wrote in a 22-page affidavit, the mere fact that people from Spokane had information on a homicide in Everett was significant. Spokane is about four hours and 47 minutes away from Everett, which is where Punky was shot. That's 300.5 miles away over the terrain of the Cascade Mountains, which is a huge mountain range. Police were very interested to hear this tale. One of the tipsters, teenage Spokane female, told authorities that she had been at a party in Spokane when there was an acquaintance there who was bragging that she had killed somebody on York Road in Snohomish County for a job. The teen had been drinking and she said to the group, I can trust you, right? And when they told her yes, because I mean, who would say no? The teen told them that she'd been hired to kill somebody in Snohomish County on York Road. The tipster said that the girl claimed she and her boyfriend at the time, Jaredon Phelps, were offered $10,000 by a baby daddy to kill the woman, but they ended up being paid about $2,000. The girl further said that she knocked on the front door, and when the woman opened the door, Phelps came around the corner shooting the woman. The girl said she then took the gun out of her boyfriend's hand and shot the woman herself, you know, just to make sure she's dead. Police couldn't immediately find the girl who said this at the party. You know, every name that they tracked down turned out to be an alias. But, you know, they couldn't find her, but they could find the name Jaredon Phelps. He was somebody they could work with because you see, he is a cousin of Kevin Lewis who happened to be married to Amanda, whose sister Punky was shot in the doorway. Hmm, what a coincidence, huh? Investigators move pretty quickly doing the things they do, you know, gathering evidence, interviewing witnesses, pulling search warrants, scouring phone records, analyzing web searches. They determined that Phelps had lived in Spokane during the time of the murder. Phone records put him driving from eastern Washington to the Everett area hours before the killing. Phelps' cell phones left Spokane around 8.30 p.m. September 19, 2017. His phone used a cell tower a half mile from the crime scene, which was only minutes from the shooting. Phelps' phone never traveled west of the Cascade Mountains before or months 
after the shooting. So why the hell was he over there? Happened to be right when Punky was killed. In March 2019, sheriff's deputies got warrants to look at Phelps's Google history, which was quite revealing. Lewis started searching for Everett shooting today and similar keywords for almost 24 hours straight, beginning at 6.26 a.m. September 20th, 2017, the day Punky was killed. Phelps also posted a video of himself early September 20th, 2017. Looked like it was taken in a hotel room. The video was timestamped just four and a half hours after the murder of Punky, and it showed Phelps fanning out over $2,000. His post, which he posted, said expletives as in parentheses. I can just imagine. Just insert your favorite bad word there. Expletives and never guess what I did for this check. Jaredon Phelps, 20, was arrested in early April 2019 at his home in Tacoma, Washington for first-degree aggravated murder and criminal conspiracy to commit first-degree murder. Also charged were Kevin Lewis, who was already in jail for the domestic violence charges, and the female, who was 16 at the time of the shooting, who they determined's real name was Alexis Hale. She was a frequent frequent runaway from New Mexico, and I could find no information about her. She did have numerous aliases, so it took a while for police to locate her. She was arrested and placed in a juvenile detention facility. When Phelps was arrested, he fessed up. He told police that his cousin Kevin Lewis had offered him $2,400 to get his ex-wife out of the way. Lewis was pissed because his wife was granted custody of the kids, and he was ordered to pay her a hundred dollars a month in child support. And remember, he had threatened her that if that happened, he would kill her. Phelps said that he and Lewis haggled over the price of the hit. The first offer had been fifteen hundred, but Phelps and Lewis finally agreed on twenty four hundred. Phelps said that Alexis provided the gun and he gave her two hundred of the twenty four hundred dollar payout. Phelps's phone contained countless pictures and videos that showed him going on a spending spree in the hours and days after the shooting. He bought clothes and shoes. He paid for a manicure, and when the arrests were made, Punky's dad told People Magazine she had just got married and was trying to get pregnant and have kids, and it was all taken from her. She got married in July, and she was dead in September. And I'm saying this, Jaredon Phelps, he was getting a manicure. He's a piece of shit. Amanda Canals also spoke up after the arrest. She said, Alicia is what I want people to remember. She was an amazing sister, an amazing friend to a lot of people, an amazing auntie. I think it's important for people to be aware and recognize red flags. And if I had maybe recognized that earlier on, my sister might still be here. Well, Amanda, maybe not. Maybe she'd be here and you wouldn't be. So please, it is not your fault. Right now, Lewis and Phelps are still in jail awaiting their trials. Each has a $5 million bond. Alexis Hale will be tried as an adult for her role in the murder of Alicia Canals McGuire. Amanda and her children and the rest of Punky's family are waiting for justice for Punky. This has been since 2017. They still haven't gone to trial. Uh, cold for a while. And we have the pandemic. I can only guess. I'm hoping this will get started soon. I'll keep an eye on the news and keep you updated on the trials. Lastly, I want to close with a message from Amanda that she posted on her social media page last October. It's DV, Domestic Violence Awareness Month. And I feel like I haven't been doing enough lately to spread the awareness that it needs. So here we go. Trigger warning. This is a photo I took of my old home after my ex-husband tried to kill me and murdered my sister. Bullet holes, blood-soaked carpet cut out and rolled up in a bag, and drywall removed for evidence. 
People have asked me how long my ex-husband was abusive for when I tried to leave. And that's a really difficult question to answer when you don't recognize all the signs of abuse. He wasn't physically abusive until I tried to leave. And she has that all caps until I tried to leave. Before that, during the marriage, he wasn't hitting me or really putting his hands on me at all. He was jealous, insecure, controlling, and manipulative. But I really couldn't see the red flags until I looked back. Abuse can come in many forms, and it's so important to know the signs. Even the most dangerous time, one of the most dangerous times for a woman is when she tries to leave her abuser. Even more, if you don't realize what they're capable of. She says, I had no idea Kevin was capable of anything like this. She continues to write, I would do anything to go back and take every precaution. If you or someone you know is having these what-if thoughts, don't take chances. There are so many resources out there to help. And I did. I looked up a domestic violence hotline. So if you or someone you know needs help, you can reach the domestic violence support at the National Domestic Violence website at thehotline.org. I went to their website and a security alert pops up instantly on their page. It says internet usage can be monitored and is impossible to erase completely. If you're concerned your internet usage might be monitored, call us at 800-799-SAFE. That's 800-799-7233. I'll post pictures and links on our website at it wasn't me, truecrime.com. Thank you so much for hanging out with me during this episode. I really enjoy sharing my passion with you. And thank you so much for your support. If you'd like to support Cindy and I even further, please consider subscribing to our podcast and giving us a five-star rating and a comment. Also, for more information, links to our Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter pages, Go to our website at itwasn'tmetruecrime.com and please recommend us to your true crime loving friends and family. Thanks again to our Patreon supporters. We love you. Thank you. Uh, and if you are interested in becoming one of our beloved patrons, you can sign up at patreon.com forward slash it wasn't me pod. Thanks again, guys. And remember, it wasn't me.